The most startling claim of Christianity is that Jesus rose from the dead after being brutally executed on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago. Could it be true? And if it were true, what difference could it make to us today? Hi, I'm Charles Morris. Thanks for joining me on the Great Stories podcast. Today, we're returning to one of my most listened to interviews of all time here on Haven Today with Dr. N.T. Wright, a leading New Testament scholar, a retired Anglican bishop, And now we may not see eye to eye on everything, but in this conversation about the historical resurrection of Christ, we're in total agreement. In fact, I believe Tom Wright offers one of the best explanations I've ever heard for why we can be certain Jesus really did rise from the dead. I know you're not going to want to miss this, especially as we prepare to celebrate Easter in a few days. But before we begin, I quickly want to say that if you like this podcast, Will you consider subscribing to it and leaving us a review? This goes a long way in helping us get more Christ-filled content like this out there to even more people. Now, let's get started. This is Haven Today, and I'm Charles Morris, and I want to welcome to the program Bishop N.T. Wright, or Bishop Wright, and may I call you Bishop Tom? Absolutely. Oh, good, good. Thank you for being on the program. Thank you. My pleasure. Time magazine said that of all Christian scholars, you are the one conservative out there that speaks for the resurrection and actually believes it happened. True or false? Oh, false. There's lots of people out there who believe that the resurrection happened whose scholarly credentials are impeccable. I would cite, for instance, the present Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, who's undoubtedly the finest uh, English Anglican theologian of our day or for many days, and he believes certainly in the bodily resurrection and so do lots of others. Mm. I suppose our audience, maybe if someone's never heard you, a listener to Haven Today, you were actually a bishop in the Church of England, Durham. Yes. Yes. Where, Durham. where is Durham if we had D- a map Durham in is, mind? If you go up England on the right-hand side towards Scotland, the last bit of England before you get to Scotland, as it were our equivalent of Maine, is a county called Northumberland, Mm -hmm. and the one immediately below that is a county called Durham, and Durham City is right in the middle of that, with uh, what, according to Bill Bryson, is the finest cathedral on the planet. Mm. Who am I to disagree? Oh, absolutely, since you're the bishop, right, of (laughs) of, of that area. You taught for many years at Oxford Mm. and Cambridge, and also McGill University in North America. Yes, I was at McGill in Montreal in the early 80s, and then I spent many years in Oxford after that before going into full-time church work. Okay. Well, some people think you're the expert on the resurrection. Uh, It wasn't too long ago that there was a television special about uh, the supposed discovery of the tomb and remains of Jesus and some of his family members. And the statement was made then that the bones don't matter to our faith because Jesus was raised spiritually, not physically. Do the bones matter? Yes, of course the bones matter because the God in whom we believe is the creator God who has promised to recreate the world. And the key thing about the resurrection of Jesus is that it's the turning point where creation turns into new creation. And you don't leave the good creation behind, it gets transformed. Now, if you have a theology which says that the body of Jesus stayed in the tomb and he went off somewhere else in a spiritual form, a so-called spiritual form, um, then you have a theology which says that the present world doesn't matter, that it was not a terribly good thing that God made it, and that really our destiny is to leave this physical world behind and go somewhere else. Now, now, the New Testament is quite clear that physicality matters. God made it, God loves it, God will redeem it. It is at present heading for death because of sin and corruption and so on, but God is going to make it 
incorrupt. Now, that mm-hmm. is hugely important. One footnote on that, St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says that the body is sown in one sort of body and raised as another sort of body. Some translations, like the RSV and the NRSV, translate that as is it, is, it is sown a, a, a physical body and raised a spiritual body. That is simply a bad translation. Mm. The word Paul uses for physical doesn't mean what we mean by physical. It means something that is animated by an ordinary human soul. And the word he uses for spiritual doesn't mean spiritual as opposed to physical. It means something which is animated by God's spirit. It is, in other words, uh, from our point of view, a physical body, but it is going to be animated by God's spirit, and therefore it won't be able to suffer or die anymore. Mm. Let's uh, move that a little bit into church history. What was the significance of the resurrection uh, to the growth of the early church? As far as the early church were concerned, the resurrection meant that God's new creation had begun and the project thus launched had to be taken forward. It wasn't, in other words, a very odd thing that God had done to rescue Jesus and God might do very odd things for us if we were lucky enough sort of thing. It was about here is a new moment in human history, cosmic history that has happened. A shockwave has gone through the whole world. Paul says the gospel has already been preached to every nation under heaven, and I, Paul, became its minister. In other words, this news has gone out into all the world, and we now have to turn that news into speech. Mm. Well, I guess we could get on the theological side of this a little bit, and we'll make it more the practical, but when God raised Jesus from the dead, Was he making a statement about Jesus? There is certainly a statement about Jesus, yes. According to Paul in Romans 1, 4, uh, the resurrection is God's declaration that Jesus really is and was and would be his son. Mm -hmm. Um, In other words, that was kind of secret or hidden before. The resurrection says, look, he really was my son all along, which then plays back and means, my goodness, that means that when this figure Jesus died, this was the Son of God that died, mm-hmm. and that then drives all sorts of bits of Paul's understanding of who Jesus is. So yes, it is a statement about Jesus. It's also a statement about the long purposes of God for creation and for Israel. They have come to fruition in the resurrection of Jesus. Mm. Now, was he also making a statement about us and those of us who put our faith in him? Yes, he was. He was making a statement uh, that, that anyone now who is, as it were, attached to or belongs to this Jesus is themselves going to be, or are themselves going to be vindicated, raised from the dead. Mm-hmm. That's the beginning of justification, after mm-hmm. all, that, mm-hmm. that because God raised Jesus from the dead, Paul says he was put to death for our trespasses and raised for our justification. In other words, God is passing a verdict on Jesus, saying, yes, he's my son. And when we belong to Jesus, Paul says in Romans 6, God says that same verdict about us. You have died to sin. You have been raised to new life. Mm. How did the resurrection become so important to you? A bishop in the Church of England, you, you used to, you've, you've been an academic all your life, but I've heard you speak enough and I've seen you interact with others. You're also, you believe in prayer. Uh, you believe in the need for Christ to be living in someone. How did the resurrection, it, did something click in your life? Did something happen? Uh, did you go to Africa on a trip? And, and what happened to you? <laughs> I grew up as a very ordinary middle-class Christian in a very ordinary bit of North, Northern England. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess the people I was with all at least said they believed in the resurrection. And at each point when I uh, examined that and thought about it, um, I was in the happy position of actually being given um, interesting books to read or whatever, which helped me understand what that could mean and helped me understand how I could believe it. Uh, I, I grew up in, a, in a, a, a family that was a praying family, not a particularly 
um, noisily devout family, but just a typical old-fashioned Anglican family who basically believed that stuff, went to church, read their Bibles, mm -hmm. tried to live as God would have us live in an undemonstrative, un unshowy sort of way. One key thing for me was somebody when I was 18 told me I should read C.S. Lewis's book, Miracles. Mm. Now, that was because I was going to go off to university and study philosophy and theology and so on. And what Lewis does in Miracles, which a lot of actually Christian apologists have not really done, is that he sees the strangeness of the resurrection stories in the New Testament. And so that it isn't just a matter of saying, we can prove that Jesus must have been raised from the dead, bang, A plus B plus C, there you've got the mm -hmm. answer. Mm -hmm. He was saying something very peculiar is going on here, which is like nothing else that has ever happened before. This is nothing other than new creation. And I remember after I'd read that, I remember hearing good evangelical sermons saying things like, you ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. Mm -hmm. And I remember sitting there thinking, that's true, but that is the truth of the day of Pentecost, not the truth of Easter Day. Mm -hmm. Easter Day is something that happens to Jesus. Now, what happens to me is a result of that, but it's not equated with that. Mm -hmm. And then for many years, I was working on other things and was just was sitting there with that theological position. I always believed the resurrection. But it's only in the last 10 years or so that I started researching more particularly what lots of other scholars had said about it. So I came out to the big book five years ago called The Resurrection of the Son of God, in which I've examined pretty well all the arguments um, that I could find about the nature of the resurrection and come back with that very solid, I hope, affirmation of the truth of the bodily resurrection. And then more recently, I did some more work in where that impinges on our worldview about how we look at the whole future, the second coming, the new world, resurrection, etc., and how that that impinges on our mission today. Mm -hmm. And that's the newest book, which is called Surprised By. And yes. that is a hat tip to C.S. Lewis. I right. mean, and, and fair enough, Surprised because... Surprised by joy, uh, yes. credit, credit where credit is due. Sure. Um, but I've tried to explore that. So for me, it's been something that's grown gradually over the years that I've always basically believed, but I've had to keep on coming back and putting another coat of paint on as new questions have been asked. Mm. We're living in light of the resurrection. Many of our listeners uh, went to church and they heard a message about the resurrection. They were at church, hopefully, on Palm Sunday as well. What's the connection between the resurrection and the death of Jesus on the cross? The resurrection shows that the crucifixion of Jesus was a victory, not a defeat. Anyone looking at the crucifixion on Good Friday without knowing what was coming next would think, oh, well, he was just another messianic pretender, <clears throat> and the Romans did to him what they do to all other messianic pretenders. The fact of the resurrection forces the very, very early church from the beginning to say... We have to think our way back through all that happened and realize that his death was actually what God had planned all mm. along. We see mm. it in Luke's gospel. The wasn't an afterthought then? Wasn't, no, of course it wasn't an afterthought. No, absolutely. So it works both ways because then you think forward from the ministry of Jesus, how is the kingdom which he is talking about going to come about? It can only come about by the powers of evil being defeated. And the mm. powers of evil are the powers which are opposed to the goodness of God's creation. Jesus takes their full force on himself in the cross. Mm. And if nothing then happens then it means that nothing then has happened. But if he is raised from the dead, it kind of retrospectively validates the whole kingdom project that he was always about. 
You've, you've actually talked a little bit about Gnosticism. You've written some about Gnosticism. There's a happy ending here, isn't there, in a physical sort of resurrection? It isn't a happy ending. It's a happy beginning. One, well, of, the odd things, yes. one of the odd things about the gospel resurrection narratives is that they don't basically say, there it is, so we all lived happily ever after. Right. It's, oh my goodness, a new world has begun and now we've got to scratch our heads and pray for the Spirit and see what we're supposed to do in this new world, which is very scary. Mm, mm. You've written, I know, and, and said that the one place where we can see and touch the new heavens and the new earth is the resurrected body of Jesus, haven't you? I'm not sure if I put it quite like that because okay. I don't know what it would mean to touch the resurrection body of Jesus for you or me. Mm -hmm. um, but Jesus certainly invites Thomas to touch and uh, the disciples on the road to Emmaus and the disciples in the upper room and on the Mount of Olives mm -hmm. at the Ascension, mm -hmm. they certainly saw Jesus and knew that he was as real as you and me and, in fact, a lot more so. Um, so, yes, the key thing about the resurrection is that God has promised to renew the whole world at the end and that he's done that in the middle of history in the case of Jesus, the, the, the risen body of Jesus is the first little bit of new creation. That's why Paul says Christ is raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who sleep. It's uh, biblical. I've heard you use this at the end of John, uh, and, and you're known as a Greek scholar. Tell me the charcoal fire story. Oh, well, when Peter denied Jesus on the night Jesus was betrayed, in John's Gospel, it says that it was a chilly night and Peter was in the high priest's courtyard and there was a charcoal fire burning there in the hearth. And the word for charcoal fire is anthracia. We have a type of coal in England called anthracite, which is a sort of charcoal which people burn. It has a particular smell. The only other time in the New Testament that that word anthracia gets used is when the disciples, some of them, are going fishing in John 21, mm -hmm. and Jesus is standing on the shore cooking breakfast, and he beckons mm -hmm. to them, and they fish, and they catch, and they come in. There he is, and the charcoal fire is burning. And now John doesn't say, and they all smelt it. I mean, he's much too no, good a writer. No, that's right. You ha like a good novel, you have to make those connections for yourself. But it's obvious what he's doing. Yes. And, and, and because immediately afterwards, Jesus appears to take Peter on one side, and he asks him three times, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Corresponding brilliantly to the three denials that Peter has made. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we can see and feel the human drama there. It's one of the most intense emotional... And, and the the, the and, word for know. love is, is brought well, in there too. The, the word for love is extraordinary because people have puzzled about this. John, when he says that Jesus asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He uses the great love word, agape. Mm -hmm. Simon, son of John, agapis me. Do you love me with that agape, that total self-giving, self-devoted love? And Peter can't bring himself to say it. And he says a, a softer word. Um, you know that I, I'm your friend. I, I'm with you. I, I'm on your side, as it were. But Peter can't seem to get the agape thing yet. He's not up to that. And then it happens again, second time. And then mm -hmm. the third time, Jesus comes down to his level. Simon, son of John, Phyllis me. Are you my friend? Mm -hmm. And it says, Peter was sad that he said on this third occasion, are you my friend? Lord, you know everything. You know I'm your friend. Um, but it seems to me that's a wonderful thing there. Jesus is saying, okay, Peter, if that's where you are, that's where we'll start. Mm -hmm. And, and, and uh, I was speaking about this the other day, and a pastor who was in the congregation came up and said to me, um, he said, that was wonderful to me, he said, because sometimes I think, you know, I'm not really up for where I should be with God. And the thought that Jesus comes and says, well, this is where you are, this is where we'll start, is, mm -hmm. is hugely encouraging. Mm -hmm. 
When you think about a verse, like let's take Second Peter 3.13, but in keeping with his promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, a home of righteousness. What do you envision when you read that verse in the New Testament? It's a tricky thing because imagination is quite difficult for us. The arts help us to imagine things, music, drama, whatever. But actually, so much of our Western cultural life for the last 200 years has been conditioned by the sort of enlightenment scientism, not science, but scientism, which says that really all you can imagine is the way the world is. It's full of entropy, it's running down, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. eventually it'll burn out or chill out or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And the thought that it might be renewable into a new form is very, very difficult for us to imagine. One way I get at it is like this. You know, if somebody's been very sick, actually a friend of mine is very sick in hospital right now as I'm recording this and praying for him regularly. And the last time I saw him, he had lost a lot of weight. And I have to say he was just a shadow of his former self. Mm-hmm. And it's very sad. The thing about the resurrection and then extrapolating out into the new creation is that if you are in Christ and indwelt by the Spirit, you are just a shadow of your future self. Mm. Now, if that's true of you or me, because we are in Christ and indwelt by the Spirit, what's it like for the whole creation? Mm. That this wonderful creation full of life and sunlight and trees and birds and flowers and power of water and air and so on. Now, imagine that flooded with the new life of God's new creation, the power which raised Jesus from the dead. The sad thing is, to be honest, all this is there in the Bible. It's there at the end of Revelation. It's there in Romans 8. It's there in many places, Isaiah 11. And many Christians have allowed their imagination to be shrunk back from actually appreciating that promise. And so they've said, well, it's a pity we're going to leave this world behind and go and sit on a cloud and play a harp forever and ever and ever. They'd like to be doing something that might be exciting. Exactly, exactly. And while our likes will no doubt be themselves transformed and what we want to do may look very different in the new world the new world will be more like be like this one only more so as mm. it were more mm. rich mm. more full more vibrant and uh, that's music helps me get there because you know whatever you're doing music will enhance it as it were sure. and and it's as though the music will T.S. Eliot has that lovely line you are the music while the music lasts mm-hmm. a sort of mm-hmm. sense of inhabited by a fresh spirit that's that's the thing to look forward to there's a there, there's a word it's 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 in their english bibles a groaning this groaning of the creation plus in in, in romans 8 the groaning yeah, of the yeah. spirit too the praying yeah. of, of the spirit what is that groaning about well and you've missed out the one in the middle which is All the right. groaning of the church it's a triple groaning okay um paul says the whole creation is groaning in travel and you know we talk about nature red in tooth and claw mm-hmm. and we look at earthquakes and tsunamis and things and we shudder and we think this world is a strange and dark place. You know, the, the tsunami a few years ago on Boxing Day that killed so many people in the Indian Ocean, um, that wasn't anybody's fault. It couldn't be blamed on either the Chinese government, the American government or a nuclear explosion. It wasn't any of those. A tectonic plate has just got to do what a tectonic plate's got to do. Mm-hmm. And we see in Romans that sense that the creation is still out of joint. It's waiting to be liberated from its bondage to decay. Now, the key thing about Romans 8 is, what's the church doing in all of this? Is the church sitting on the sidelines, looking at the world in a mess, a moral mess, an ecological mess, whatever, and saying, oh, well, we at least have got our act together. <laughs> we're, 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 we're right, God's, yes. We're God's people, we're all right. That's Absolutely right. not. The answer is no. The church is to be in prayer at the place where the world is in pain. And the way God 
shoves us into doing that is that we pick up the pain on our own radar screens. Mm -hmm. So that just as one example, at the moment, the whole world is in pain, politically, sociologically, but not least, for instance, in terms of the role and identity and behavior of men and women, of gender and sexuality and mm -hmm. so on. Where should the church be? Well, it would be nice if we got our ethics together and I and others work for that. But the fact that many bits of the church are themselves in pain, struggling with some of these issues, doesn't mean that we've taken a horrible wrong turning. It may mean that we are actually holding on to a place where the world is in pain, in prayer. And then the key thing, where is God in that process? Mm. Is God sitting over against us saying, wish yes. you folk yes. could get your act together? The answer is no. By the Spirit, God is present within the groaning of the church, within the groaning of the world. And that is good news. When the world is in pain, God is there. How is God in there? By praying with those inarticulate groanings within the praying church. To me, that is an agenda for Christian living, mm. to be in prayer at the place where the world is in pain. I'm Charles Morris, and I want to welcome to the program Bishop N.T. Wright, or Bishop Wright. And does the resurrection of Jesus say something to us as believers right now about how we live now in a 21st century? The resurrection of Jesus basically says new creation has begun, and you are invited not only to be a beneficiary of that, but also an agent of it. Mm -hmm. The thing about living as a Christian, people often imagine that it's a matter of having 10, 20, 100 rules on the wall of do this, don't do that. Now, rules matter, don't get me wrong, mm -hmm. but rules are only, as it were, the surface noise, the icing on the cake. There is something much deeper, much richer, something that's growing of which these are just the outward symptoms, which says, listen, if new creation has begun and you are in Christ, you are yourself supposed to be a little walking bit of new mm. creation mm. right now. Now, here's what it'll look like, and that's where you get the rules and the guidelines and the advice and the, and the firm. Uh, you must do this, mustn't do that stuff in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. But these are ways of saying it's difficult to be part of new creation. You will need help. and These rules are there to help you. But it's actually the most liberating thing out. And we're not only supposed to be little bits of new creation, we're supposed to do bits of new mm -hmm. creation mm -hmm. in works of justice and mercy, in works of love and beauty, you know, art, literature, feeding the homeless, feeding the hungry and homeless, working with rehab programs to help people in dire need. All of this is about bringing the new creation down to earth. Jesus taught us to pray thy kingdom come on earth as in heaven. That's what the resurrection is all about. Mm. And the two go together. Then. Absolutely. Yes, yes, Absolutely. they do. Uh, God intended heaven and earth not to be split apart, but to come together. Paul says exactly that in Ephesians 1.10. Mm. If you just joined us, you're listening to uh, Bishop Tom Wright of the Church of England, uh, the Bishop of Durham, who's joining us here on Haven today. Most of our listeners, Bishop Tom, would be uh, in North America. Now, you're coming from a totally different context. You're looking at Christianity, not just in uh, Great Britain and, and then also Europe and other parts of the world. Uh, but you've been coming to North America for a while here. You've, you've, you've taught here, as you pointed out earlier. If you could change anything uh, in Christians in the United States and Canada, and even your own country uh, in Great Britain, what would that be? Where would you try to lead them? What would you try to get them to see that they're not seeing now about the resurrection, about Christ, about the cross? What would that be? It's hard because I've got about 15 things and it's hard to know well, how to and, rank and them. And you can but, be critical. Um, <laughs> I'm kind of trying to draw you out a little <laughs> yeah. bit here to be critical. But let me start even. with where we were because that's a very important thing to me. I have heard so many 
people in Britain and North America who sing uncritically those hymns which simply say, one day we'll be off to heaven, as though that is the end of the story. And I've said again and again in the New Testament, heaven is important, but it's not the end of the world. Uh In other words, words, if you want to say that when you die, if you're in Christ and indwelt by the Spirit, if you're a Christian, you go to heaven, fine. Okay, Paul says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But that's not the end of the story. Christians are committed in the New Testament to a two-stage post-mortem reality. When Jesus says to the dying thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise, today, that's Good Friday. It's not Mm -hmm. Easter Day yet. Mm -hmm. There's a time when he is dead in paradise with the thief. But Mm -hmm. then on Easter Day, Jesus rises again. And according to Paul, all those who have died in Christ are at present, he uses the word asleep in Christ. I think it's a conscious state. I don't think it's asleep in that sense. People sometimes misunderstand that. But then he says, at Jesus' second coming, then those who are in Christ will rise. That's the really important thing. Paul and the other New Testament writers are much more interested in the idea of the final new heavens and new earth and are being raised to life in that. And the thing is, if you believe simply in dying and going to heaven, what's the point about trying to make this world a better place and do justice and mercy within it? But if you believe that God is going to renew the whole heavens and new earth and that that already starts now, that gives us a whole agenda for our own life and mission right here and now. You might as well explain that to us too. In Genesis, there was creation out of nothing. And mm-hmm. and, and go ahead and use the Greek yeah, word yeah, or the yeah, Latin well, or whatever, yeah, well, but, but explain <laughs> in, that to us. In Genesis, the creation is made out of nothing, so it seems. The Latin traditionally ex. is creatio ex nihilo. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> um, but the new creation in Revelation 21 and so on, we are told to be creatio ex fetere, a creation out of the old. And the model of Jesus' own resurrection is exactly that. That's right. That Jesus' own resurrection takes the bits of his body, the the body that was, the dead body, and transforms it, leaving an empty tomb behind it. So it's a recognizable body. You know, stick your hand at my side or or you could see that that was It is recognizable, but of course, because it has been transformed, it both is recognizable and looks different. Like if my friend who is currently very sick in hospital, if he gets better, which I hope and pray he will, though the doctors are not sure at the moment, Hmm. then one day I will see him again and he'll be better and he will be look different from how he looked when I saw him just a few weeks ago when he was mm. still very sick. And I'll look at him and say, hey, is it really you? Can it be you? This is wonderful. And that's the sort of sense. There's a recognition, but let's not imagine that this is just a resuscitation, that you come back exactly the same. Because, you know, our bodies are full of decay and death at the moment. We Bits drop off them and, you know, mm-hmm. hair and yes, fingernails, yes, but also yes. lots of other things go wrong with them and eventually we, we die. But the new bodies that we're given will be raised immortal. They will not die. Mm. Bishop Tom, you've mentioned the new creation making itself known in music. How does the Lord speak to us today in music and even art? It's hard for me to pick one work of art or one piece of music that speaks of new creation because there are so many. There are so many. And I was privileged actually to share in one by the composer Paul Spicer, who wrote an Easter oratorio a few years ago for which I did the libretto and he did the music. And we're supposed to be working on another similar thing right now. But there's one thing which which really stands out. In the British Museum, at least it lives there, but it goes around from time to time, in the basement, there is a tree of life which stands about eight feet tall and was made by local artists in Mozambique after the Civil War. And it's an amazing thing with its full structure and leaves and birds and animals around it. 
and it is made entirely from decommissioned weapons. Mm. And it is just hugely striking that for a generation that had forgotten that there might be such a thing as peace because of all the horrible, horrible violence, and we're not talking about people shooting people at 200 yards distance, we're talking about mm. people hacking each other to bits with, with farm implements, you know, to see those weapons being turned into a sign of beauty and peace and hope. Just a very, very powerful and striking statement. It was commissioned by Christian Aid in collaboration with Neil McGregor, who is a Christian, who is the director of the British Museum. And to me, that sort of thing is worth 50 volumes of theology, as people can come and stand under it and weep and think and pray. And you don't have to have lots of fussy little words telling you what to think. You just look just at look it. Just look at it. And it just tells you about new creation. Mm -hmm. And it's straight out of Isaiah 11 or out of Micah or whatever, beating your swords into plowshares mm -hmm. and your spears into pruning hooks, uh, and, and the tree of life from Revelation and the leaves of the tree being for the healing of the nations. And to think of local artists taking weapons and turning it into just that's absolutely that, stunning. That's living the resurrection it really today. Is. It really is. Isn't it? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Amen. Thank you. Amen. Before we leave our time together, I've asked Bishop N.T. Wright to lead us in prayer. Almighty Father, we thank you that through the mighty resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, you have overcome death and opened the new creation, the new world that you always planned and made. We thank you that by the power of the Spirit of Jesus Christ at work within us and in the world, you can and will do new creation in and through us. We pray that we may have the courage in our day so to have our minds renewed by this message that we may live in our own lives that risen new life to which you call us but may also be the means of bringing that new creation to the places in your world that so badly need it. Father, we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining me here on Great Stories with Charles Morris. I had a great time looking back at that time I spent with N.T. Wright, especially now as we approach Resurrection Sunday in just a few days. I met with Tom, that's what he told me to call him, in San Diego back in 2008. I left feeling very encouraged about our risen Lord, and I'm so thankful that we could share this interview with you. If you enjoyed it, would you please share it with your friends? And please visit our website and sign up for our weekly email to remind you about the podcast. And don't forget to subscribe through the service you use to listen. Links are in the show notes. Thanks for joining me for Great Stories with Charles Morris.